well. <laughs> Shall we stop and pray that I will be coherent? Uh, actually, with this subject of the last day of Jesus coming again, um, it's a little bit like, um, I get asked a fair bit, you know, about evolution and creation and so on, because I have a background in um, academic zoology and The thing I always want to say, first of all, before talking about any of the ins and outs of that subject, is, you know what? I frequently lose my shoes. I have no idea where they are. And um, given that that is the capacity of my mind, I just think we need a little bit of humility when we're considering the origin of all living things. (laughs) And explaining it in, you know, terms that we can understand. And I know that Um, You're just like me, really. And the same is true when we look at the end days, the last days. We're talking really about the summing up of everything. And therefore, a little bit of humility is appropriate. And that humility ought to express itself in some prayer that God would help us. Yeah? Yeah. Because we're not going to get it otherwise, are we? No, yeah. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, who showed us what you're really like, as Alan was sharing from the scriptures. And we pray that just as Jesus came and showed us the truth, so that we would truly know what you're like. Lord, as we look at the scriptures this morning, would you speak to us so that we would see things that are clear and true? Would they land not only in our thinking, but deep in our inner being? Lord, your word is living and active And we pray that this morning it would come to us as a living word, that our hearts would be good soil. Lord, help us not only to think the right things, but just to approach you and to approach your word with the right attitude that would enable us to receive from you. Lord, we receive those prophetic encouragements this morning about transformation. We pray that you would transform us. Lord, as we look at your word, would you transform us, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way as we open the scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you know, we are largely just going to be looking at the scriptures this morning. As I prepared for this morning, um, what I felt I ought to do is actually just read quite a lot of the Bible. Read quite a few scriptures and simply uh, do so in a sort of order that might mean that they join up in our understanding and just offer enough comment on them to make sense of them. So we really are looking at the scriptures this morning. And on the PowerPoint as it goes forward, there are actually quite a lot of references uh, to texts in the Bible, which I'll be reading. So just don't be surprised as that happens. So here's the first thing to say. This is the foundation of all that's to follow, is that Jesus will come again. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus will come again. In Matthew 26, as Jesus is being questioned by the high priest who says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus predicts that he will come again. After he ascended into heaven, having been with the disciples after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And it says in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples were standing there looking into heaven. That's understandable. 
I don't know what else I would have done. It would have been remarkable to go and do anything else very quickly after witnessing that. And it says in Acts 11 and from verse 10 and into verse 11, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they asked, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Because this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming again. That is the foundation for what we're going to look at this morning. He's coming back. He has walked the earth. Here he died and rose again. He wandered around in a resurrection body and then ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father and is alive and just as real as he was in his time here on earth. He has left the earth for a while. Just for a while. And left us the Holy Spirit so that we would experience his presence in the coming age. But he's coming back. He's coming back. When Jesus came to earth, you know, he started something new. He started a new messianic age. In the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, it had been prophesied that a Messiah would bring God's kingdom. Messiah means anointed one. And what the, well, there are a number of people that got anointed with oil in the Old Testament, but especially kings. Kings were anointed with oil to show that the favor of God was on them in their rule. And huh, Israel had a load of duff kings, really. I mean, through, through, if you read through those historical books, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, and read through all the kings, it's pretty depressing if you've done, most of you know that. It's, there's occasionally a good one who sometimes lasts with that goodness to the end of his life. Even the ones that we look at and think, wow, they were great. David and Solomon flatly disobeyed the law of Moses, which said you should not accumulate gold and silver. You should not take many wives. You should not think yourself above your brothers. So even when in in Kings and Chronicles, where it talks about them, it says the tone of those accounts is, weren't they amazing? They had so much wealth and they were so great. And had so many wives. And it was a flagrant uh, disobedience to the law of Moses. The kings of Israel were, at the end of the day, nothing to get excited about. And the prophets began to see that there was something more, something better. That there would be a new king. Another king, anointed by God, who would do a better job. Who would bring in a new kingdom or a new era of the kingdom of God, which had started in the Old Testament. And Jesus did that. He came as the Messiah, anointed, not just with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the power of God. And he brought the kingdom of God on the earth. Yeah? You with me? But he didn't complete it, did he? He came and he started this new kingdom, but he didn't complete it. He got it going, but it's not here in all its fullness. There remains sickness and sin. There remains strife and rebellion in the world. So 
The light of Christ is truly shining in the world. He has he came as the light of the world, and he's made us, his people, now to be the light of the world. So his light is shining. The new covenant people of God are in the earth. That's the church. And yet, the kingdom's not come in all of its fullness. We live in an age where the kingdom has come and is not yet complete. And Jesus told a number of parables to help us to understand this thing. It's a, it's a pretty complex reality, isn't it? We're talking about what's going on in the whole world. What's going on in the whole world is, well, there's the church there. There's all kinds of other stuff going on as well. So Jesus told a few parables. Matthew 13. We're on the next slide. Matthew 13. Is full of parables about the kingdom. We'll read just a couple. There's the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable, verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, So, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. So let both grow until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. This is Jesus revealing truth about the age in which we live. The kingdom has come, there is good seed growing. And yet there continues to be a mixture of good and evil in the world. And God has determined that he will restrain himself from just sorting it all out because the strength that he would exercise to sort it all out would be so traumatic that it would be difficult for the people of God too. And so he exercises restraint and says, just let it grow for now. It will be dealt with, but in this age, we'll just let it grow together. And so Jesus explains that though he's brought in the kingdom of God in this age and until that day of final harvest, we live with this frustrating mixture. Drop down a few verses where Jesus also says another parable in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now here's another picture. It's a contrasting picture. This picture says that the kingdom of God has again been started, but here the yeast is working its way through bit by bit by bit by bit until the whole of the dough, which is a picture of the world, is filled with this new life from God, which the yeast represents. The picture of the yeast 
uh, might remind you of one of the visions that Daniel had. It's recorded in Daniel chapter 7, where there's a picture of this statue which is made clear to represent all of the kingdoms of the world, and then a stone which it says was not cut out by human hands, was thrown at the base of the statue and destroyed the statue. And then this stone, this divine stone, not cut out by human hands, grew until it became a mountain that filled the earth. And so that, that's true as well. And I don't know how those two things are fit together entirely. Jesus says them both clearly and both are true. There is ongoing struggle in this life because evil remains present and God is restrained in how much he just steps in to deal with it all because his dealing with it would be so, so cataclysmic, so dramatic and traumatic that out of mercy for people, he holds back. And yet, he's at work, growing the kingdom. And you know, the gospel is going out and being preached in more and more places. The number of people who have been born again increases daily and has done, you know, throughout history. And the proportion of people alive who are following Jesus increases and increases. Actually, there's an acceleration in that increase that went on in the latter part of the 20th century and is continuing today. So somehow we need to hold those two truths together Uh, that there are all kinds of strife, wars, famine, and much more terror of different sorts, whilst at the same time the gospel continues to be preached to all the nations. And actually Jesus says that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and nations there means uh, people groups, all the different language groups, all the different tribes, and before the end will come for Jesus to wrap it all up. But you know what? The end will come. Whilst God is exercising restraint and leaving room for people to grow and to live life without the trauma of that final day, there will come a day when Jesus will return to complete the new age. He's not going to wait forever. Even whilst he exercises patience, He's clear that he's not going to wait forever. So let's have a little look at what will happen on the day when Jesus returns. The scriptures say a number of things that will happen on the day that Jesus returns. We're just going to look at three and cover quite a lot of ground even just by looking at three. So the first one is this. We'll turn to John chapter 5 and verse 28. When Jesus returns, there will be a general resurrection. When Jesus, this is a painting actually supposed to portray the story of Lazarus, whom Jesus called from the dead in his ministry. It says in the Gospels that when Jesus was raised from the dead, a number of other people burst out of their tombs in the vicinity power of God to raise people to life was at work in the area. But when Jesus comes back again, everyone will be resurrected. There will be a general resurrection. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 28, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear 
the Son of Man's voice and come out. All will be resurrected, whether they believe it or not, (laughs) in this life. And uh, this is true. Sometimes people say, this is why you have to be buried in one piece. And uh, otherwise, where are you going to resurrect from? And, you know, therefore being cremated and scattered is a problem. But actually, I, I think it's pretty clear that if it's in the power of God to resurrect the whole of humanity in a day, then our scattered atoms are not too much of a problem for him. And, you know, we needn't worry about that. We actually had a guy, he's, he's spoken here a couple of times, Bal Krishna Sharma from uh, Kathmandu in Nepal, he came to Oxford to do a PhD on cremation. Uh, which might not seem hugely important to all of you, but he comes from Nepal, which was a Hindu kingdom, and Hindus burn their dead and have rituals around the burning of the body. And there's this question, you know, when, when people became Christians, they didn't want to carry on the practices that they'd left in Hinduism and felt that they ought to make a break from that and to bury their dead rather than burn them. This is a complete aside, but... Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, we've got into it. The, um, the problem was that the wider community believed that if you buried... Because they never buried people. They believed if you buried a body, which is a weird thing to do from their perspective, that the ghost of that person would rise and torment the local community. So that they were not up for letting the Christians bury their dead. They said, you can bury your dead as long as you bury them in remote wildernesses far from anyone, which was then you know, impossibly expensive to do. And it was a source of community strife. And uh, anyway, if anyone's worrying about... Just in case that question's lingering anywhere, <laughs> for anyone, it's all right. Because God... He, that was the conclusion of his, his doctoral thesis. It's all right. Um, uh, uh, today, it's a bit cheaper as well to get cremated than buried. So that's what most of us will do, I suspect. And it's, it's okay. Anyway, uh, the point is... That when Jesus comes back, everyone, however they died, wherever and whenever they died, and whatever was done with their body, uh, will be resurrected, will come back to life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, it's written about in a bit more detail. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant. And so there's some explanation from verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That is a little phrase meaning die. Uh, except that Paul is drawing out here the fact that, you know, they're not totally dead, are they? Their life's not been extinguished. So let's say they've fallen asleep. And don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. They will have, those who have already fallen asleep will have priority. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. So you're not going to miss it. And the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first, And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. 
Those few verses emphasize the resurrection of those who are in Christ. But Paul also is recorded as having spoken elsewhere, Acts 24, verse 15, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So everyone, just as Jesus said, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. So uh, those of us who are children of God get to share in Christ's resurrection, it says in Romans 5, what Hebrews 11 verse 35 calls a better resurrection. We get a better resurrection in Christ. We'll all be given, this is amazing stuff, isn't it? Um, It's quite incredible to get our heads around. We'll all be given new bodies. Some of you can say amen. Uh, Not like the one we now have, but an immortal body like Jesus' own resurrection body, which has the cool property of walking through walls. Brilliant. Go figure. I mean, yeah, go figure. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, this is how it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown into the ground, into the grave, that body is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. You know, we're all a bit embarrassed about our bodies somewhere, aren't we? And we sin with them as well. It's a good reason to be embarrassed. Um, But it's raised in glory that is looking like Jesus. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. It's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. So there we are. When Jesus comes, there'll be a resurrection. And if that hasn't already started... You know we sang this morning about lifting our eyes? Yeah? This is the stuff that does it, isn't it? Lifting our eyes from... What's going to happen this week for us? What's going to happen for us this week with our bodies is we may do a bit of exercise and wear them out and build them up a bit. They may decay slightly. Uh, probably a bit of both, actually. Um, for anyone aged over, is it 19? We've got brain cells dying this week. Uh, <laughs> but it, Jesus is coming again. And with a body where the brain cells don't die. What else is going to happen on that day? Not only resurrection, but separation. John the Baptist said, the reference isn't there, but it's in Luke 3. John the Baptist said of Jesus that he would come with a winnowing fork. A winnowing fork is what this guy is using here. You take the mess of cut, uh, the, the the harvested wheat, the mess of stalks and chaff and seeds, and you wait for a windy day. You throw it up in the air, and the stuff that you don't want is lightweight. The stalks and the seed husks and so on, they blow away. And the seeds alone, with the weight that they have, fall back down by your feet. You keep doing it, you keep doing it, and you separate out what is good from what is not wanted anymore. We read already from John chapter 5, verse 28. Let me read a little bit more. A time is coming, Jesus said, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus told a parable to help us understand this too. Matthew 25 and verse 31 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's on this day, the last day, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you looked after me. I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whenever, well, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. After the resurrection, there will be a separation. Let's note a few other things that the New Testament says about this separation. It says that as well as all being resurrected, that all will be judged. All will be judged. That includes us and anyone else you can think of. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10. We make it our goal to please him while we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We all will be judged. And our fate is fixed in this life. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 3, says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace, safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. All will be judged. Our fate is fixed in this life. When the day comes, it's too late. Those who are God's children, the righteous, will enter God's presence. Alan read for us from John 14, In my father's house there are many rooms. 
Jesus said to his disciples, if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, second coming, and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, let's just get this clear in our heads because some of you will be thinking, hang on a minute, I thought that when I became a Christian, everything was forgiven, right? And therefore, does that, do I not avoid judgment? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Everything's forgiven. God doesn't need to judge me because when he looks at me, he sees me just as seeing Jesus. Uh, I've been washed clean by the work of Christ at the cross, sacrifice for me, substitution, all of that. So, you know, this judgment thing doesn't really make sense. How can all be judged? And anyway, how does, what's the point of being judged if, after all, Jesus is going to just take us all to heaven anyway? I mean, isn't it a bit of a waste of time? Well, uh, if you've got a Bible, this is a key thing to turn to. 1 Corinthians 3. Because in these few verses, Paul distinguishes between the judgment of people as a whole and a person's eternal fate and the judgment of a person's works and what reward or punishment will follow from their works. And let's just follow what he says. He says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the foundation. If any man builds on this foundation, Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, which probably has a capital D in your translation, the day of the Lord, the last day, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. um, Paul is here speaking to Christians who are concerned, in this particular context, with building church, because he's been speaking about a building which is the church, and he's talking about different ways of building. So that's his particular focus here, but there's something that is more generally true for us that we can discover from it. What he says is, as he writes to Christians, whatever you do, even if you do a load of unworthy stuff with your life, when the fires of judgment come, you will be saved. You will go to that room which Jesus has prepared for you in the Father's house. That is secure. That is not being questioned. Your having been born again guarantees you that future as a child of God. It is the righteous who go to heaven, and you have been made righteous if you have believed in Jesus. Yeah? So there's no doubt about any of that. But in addition to that, what you've done in this life will be assessed. If what you've done in this life is all unworthy, then it's like stuff that will get burnt up through the fires of judgment. And you'll get to heaven, but taking nothing with you. And what 
Paul says is that that is suffering loss. All the stuff that you've invested in and has been precious to you, you will leave behind and enter, as it were, just naked into heaven. And that'll be it. So you're secure, but you'll enter in that state. If, however, you have built with gold and silver and costly stones, if you've done worthy work in this life, then that will survive the fires of judgment and you will take with, and you will, the fruit of your labor in this life will go with you into eternity as a reward for what you've done. Yeah? And so it matters. So we will be judged and what we do genuinely matters for us even whilst our eternal salvation is secure. What about those who don't have faith in Jesus, who've not been born again and received the righteousness from Christ? 2 Thessalonians 1 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. The word hell is used to describe the place of punishment. The punishment is promised. The place of punishment is hell. Which is why we talk about heaven and hell. There's no other options. There's a separation, some to heaven and some to hell. Now, many of you will know that there's a lot of um, debate, let's say, around some aspects of what the Bible teaches here. One particular dispute is over how long the punishment will last. Some people say that the punishment will really last no time at all because the punishment will be a destruction, a second death, that people will have been raised to life through the resurrection only to be destroyed finally as a result of being condemned in the judgment. So it says in Matthew 10 and verse 28, for example, that God has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. So there's a theme in the New Testament of destruction, of bringing finally to an end, which means that the punishment is real, but it really lasts no time, because what it is, is destruction. That view goes under the title of annihilationism. However, that's not all the New Testament has to say. In Revelation 14, for example, it says this as an, as an image of what this punishment is really like. It says, if anyone worships the beast, we won't get into all the imagery of Revelation today, but suffice to say it's to do with those who aren't worshipping God. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. 
You know, sometimes we have this idea of God not really being up for punishing people. But the scriptures say that this punishment will take place in the presence of God, in the presence of the Lamb, no less. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now, there are these two things then, a punishment that is destruction and a punishment that endures. And people debate whether we should settle on annihilationism or on a belief in eternal punishment. And there are a couple of attempts that people might, might make to find a middle way. So, for example, the Greek word for eternal doesn't really mean infinite in the way that we understand it, because that concept of infinite is a pretty modern one. It wasn't there in the ancient world. For them, there was no real difference between an indefinite period of time, like when we say long-term, and infinity. So it's a bit like the fact that they didn't have a number in Greek for... They didn't have a word for a number any larger than 10,000. Anything bigger than 10,000 was just big. And, you know, there's a constraint of language here. When it says, the Greek word is aeonios, when it says that, does it mean eternal, in a sense of infinite, or just we don't know when it will end? So maybe there's a bit of a middle way there. But having explored that for just a few seconds, I want to be clear, I don't see that in the scriptures In Matthew 25, we read it already, at the end of the parable of the sheep and goats, it says in one verse where the same Greek word is repeated that the sheep will go to eternal life and the goats to eternal punishment, which says that pretty clearly that one lasts as long as the other. If you want hell not to last forever... then we somehow have to bring that back to heaven and say, well, it's not how God seems to have planned it. Which is why, of course, Jesus says, in very, very straightforward language, it's better to pluck your own eye out than to go to hell. It's better to cut one of your hands off if it's causing you a spiritual problem than to go to hell. It's, it matters. It's not just going to go away one day. So, on the last day, there will be resurrection, separation leading to different eternal fates, and a new creation. On that day, there will be a new creation. 2 Peter 3 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he speaks on a cosmic scale. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. 
but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous, the home of righteousness. Romans 8 verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So there will be a whole new... It's like Just as the bodies that we will have will be not like these ones. They'll be different in ways we can barely get our heads around. Actually, the same is true on a cosmic scale. The whole world will be renewed. And life in the new earth will be radically different. For me, the verse that made... I haven't got a reference for it here. You can find it in your own time, uh, because I can't remember where it is either. Jesus says... It's when Jesus is being questioned about life in heaven, and what if you've married more than one bloke in your time on earth? How is that going to work in heaven? People go, and this was an argument that people made say, you know, resurrection's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it can't possibly work. You marry several people. I mean, you can't figure that one out. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. In the resurrection life, people won't get married. It just, it just won't be like that. And obviously, there's been a consultation launched by the government, which has led to a coalition for marriage stepping forward and I don't know about you, I've signed a petition on the Coalition for Marriages website saying there is something fundamental about human nature that is expressed in marriage. It's a fundamental of humanity. And yet in this new earth, even that's not going to work the same way. If something as fundamental as two becoming one, a man and a woman in marriage, if that's not going to be going on, in the new earth, then I've got to confess to some uncertainty about exactly what it'll all be like. It's pretty basic stuff, isn't it? The new earth is going to be radically different from the one that we're in. Um, I was actually speaking on this in um, King's Theological College, in the Bible College this week. I was doing lectures on the kingdom of God, which touched on these subjects. And uh, actually, if This morning has whet your appetite for knowing a bit more about it. We do have an excellent theological college here, which you can go to. They even let you do study breaks to pick the subjects you want to, but you could go for a whole year. That'd be even better. And marinate in the word of God for a year. It's a little aside. Um, We're saying, so how radical is this new earth? I mean, and um, I think this might help. If somebody walks into your kitchen and goes, ooh, look, you've got a new kitchen. They might stop, and after a minute or so, go, oh, actually, what? you've just changed the taps in the fronts of the cupboards. It's a new kitchen, right? Yeah, it is. Oh, you've done, it. You've done your kitchen up. It's a new kitchen. Uh, it is possible to renew your kitchen in more fundamental ways. You could, you could change all the units in your kitchen and put them in different places a little bit. It's more fundamental change. You could... Uh, strip out all the plumbing and the electrics and put them in different places and have a completely new arrangement, new kitchen, yeah? Uh, You could knock your kitchen to the ground, raise it flat, and build it up again from scratch. That would be a new kitchen. Uh, You could actually just knock that kitchen down 
and go and build one somewhere else. That would be a new kitchen as well, or new, different kinds of new kitchen. Um, whereabouts in that range does the renewal of creation for a new earth sit? Well, it's not just taps and cupboard fronts, is it? But Romans 8 says to us that there's something about this creation being subjected to frustration that it needs to be released from, which makes it clear that neither is it that most extreme option of just giving up on this one and starting something different. But it is towards that end of the spectrum, isn't it? It's probably somewhere around raise the whole thing flat and build it up again. Because Peter says... The heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That's a little bit more than re-plumbing and redoing the wiring. So all of that's going to happen on this day as well. Can we really believe all of this? It's a little bit far-fetched, isn't it? I mean, it was said 2,000 years ago and it still hasn't happened. So, really, uh, as I've been saying these things, I think two things will have been going off. Uh, One will be people going, oh, that's brilliant, that. Praise God, what a future. How incredible. But there's also another thing that goes, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. This this is all a bit like fairy tale-like, isn't it? Honestly. The world, you know, keeps going round. (laughs) And people keep predicting the end of the world, and it doesn't seem to happen. So, I thought it was worth pausing and saying, is this really credible? The scriptures give three things that I think can help us. The first thing, uh, really simply, is that Jesus' resurrection is seen as a guarantee of the general resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit. It's like the first bit of a harvest is the first fruit of the whole harvest. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, believing in a general resurrection of all of humanity is not hard. Secondly, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is put into us who believe as a guarantee as well. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know, if you've got questions about this whole area of, you know, the end of the age and so on, feel free to look into it all. Please come to college. Do whatever you need to do to look into it and to grapple with it in your head. But, you know, you won't get final clarity that way. Actually, at the end of the day, it is a spiritual thing. The Holy Spirit, you'll, you'll understand it far more. You'll have a better grasp of the scriptures. And actually, in that process, you might well meet with God. You probably will, taking time to study the scriptures. But it's the meeting with God that will bring the clarity. Because it's the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us which brings certainty to us. He is the assurance He's the one who assures us that we're children of God, says in Romans 8. He's also the one who assures us about the future and what will occur. We need need more of the Holy Spirit. If we're uncertain and wondering about it all, what we need 
is more of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, there is a reason for the slowness. You know, the early church heard Jesus say that he'd come back, and they did what we all do with prophecies, which is we think they're going to happen sooner than God intends them to happen. Uh, If any of you have a prophecy about your life, chances are, if there's any really substantial prophecy over your life, most of the time, we think it's going to happen sooner than it does. Can anyone testify to that? That I'm not just, yeah. It's like that, isn't it? Well, what we have with the early church is the same thing happening on a grand scale. Jesus says, I'm coming back. They go, brilliant, that will happen quite soon, won't it? And there's something else. It just took them a while to realize that actually they, he, he had actually also said very clearly, I'm not telling you when. He said that very clearly too. It'll come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. But they, they assumed it would happen quickly. And it was a while before they realized it wasn't going to be that quick. And then Peter, in his second letter, says, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Rather, he is patient. Very patient. 2,000 years patient so far. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, that picture of a field with weeds in the wheat, you know the amazing thing about the gospel is that through faith in Christ, the weeds become wheat. It's not just that they grow up alongside each other and, ah, well, there you go. The growing kingdom, the yeast that's growing, finds expression in the field of weeds and wheat as weeds become wheat, transformed and made new creations, righteous in Christ. And God wants to give every opportunity for that to happen. He's holding off out of patience and love. We'll read one more parable, and then I don't know what we're going to do. Um, We will certainly pray, because actually we need to pick up on the prophetic things that were shared. And it's like this. Matthew 25. Jesus told another parable about the kingdom, and he said, yeah, the end is nigh. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This was, this was normal wedding practice um, in the time. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There might not be enough for both us and you. Go, go buy some oil. Buy some for yourselves. While they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, Open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus teaching about all of this, it's good for us to 
get our heads around what's going to happen. But what does it mean practically for us right now? Jesus says, be ready, be prepared, live in a state of readiness. Now, someone standing on a street corner and saying the end is nigh, occasionally effective evangelistically. Um, It's probably not the most widely used form of evangelism, and there are probably reasons for that, but I mean, God blesses things done in faith, doesn't he? Um, It's definitely a message for us. It's good for us to keep in mind that the end is nigh. Could come any time. Could come before lunch. Before coffee. And I think it's right for us to see in this parable of the ten virgins something of a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus chose to speak about oil. And Graham was uh, prophesying and speaking from the story of Jacob, who took an ordinary stone and poured oil on it, and in anointing it, that place was changed. It became known as the house of God. And uh, there's something that is true for us as Christians, that our readiness means being constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. What we don't want on the day that Jesus returns is to find that we ran out of spiritual life some time back. We want to be living in the constant overflow of the life of the Spirit, don't we? Day by day by day by day. Not just having some good moments in the Holy Spirit, but with plenty of spiritual life given to us by God. If we live in the life of God, if we live in the life of the Spirit, we'll be ready when he comes. And I think we need to respond to what was shared prophetically about transformation uh, and invite the Holy Spirit to come. That's a good response to the fact that Jesus is returning. And if it is before coffee, we'll be ready.